0: Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberties, a journal of culture and politics. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast, on which I chat with our writers and the larger Liberty circle about whatever is on our minds. In this first episode, Leon Wieseltier, editor of Liberties, and I discuss the anxieties that riddled 2020 and how they might shape 2021 these themes are indirectly referred to or are the primary subject of a number of the essays in issue one. However, the podcast is intended to be entirely comprehensible even to someone who has not read a copy of Liberties. At the end of the podcast, though, if you do enjoy this kind of discourse, that probably means you'd enjoy the journal. So head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe. If you go now, your subscription will begin with a copy of issue one. Hi Leon. Hi Celeste. Happy New Year. And to you. I want to talk a little bit about the many different kinds of terror and unhappiness, uh, hopelessness in the many different realms that we've experienced those things mm-hmm. over the past year. Um, there have been some good things, there have been some hopeful moments, but there's been a lot of darkness and of many it different certainly kinds. has, yeah. Um, So I wanted to try and make sense of these different difficulties with you.
1: Yeah, good. It's important that our first podcast at Liberty start on a light subject. (laughs) Typical. Mm. I think that uh, very few periods, in fact, no period in my lifetime, has raised so sharply the question of optimism and pessimism. Uh, and what those two outlooks really mean. Um, As you said, in the past year, uh, and it's going to continue, certainly, to the summer as regards the pandemic, and then there are all the other problems that the election of Biden by itself will not fix. There's a lot of work to be done, uh, and there are many people in this country who have reasons for for being dispirited, discouraged, or despairing. Uh, I think the first important thing to say about hope and fear, well, no, let's go back to optimism and pessimism and make the point this way. I think as a view of the world, both optimism and pessimism are always exaggerated. I never, I don't think there has ever been a time in human history when only the one was warranted by reality and none of the other was. So in in thinking about whether to be optimistic or pessimistic, the first question one has to ask oneself is with respect to what? Because if one tries to build it into a view of everything, then one is going to miss important characteristics of reality. Uh, And you'll wind up with the kind of chic pessimism that appears since Spengler that appears periodically in bad times. Um, The most important fact about both hope and fear, I think, is that they're both based on ignorance. They both originate out of our ignorance. The reason we're hopeful or the reason we're fearful is because we don't know. Or if we do know a bit about our reality and its prospects, we don't know enough to feel about it with certainty. Mm. And it's this lack of certainty, it's this ignorance about the future that can be met either with hope or with fear. Uh, You know, there are people, there is a philosopher who once said that all hope is false because we don't know if it's true or not. That seems a little bit um, harsh it is possible to have hope that is warranted by aspects of reality. For example, the invention of the vaccine would be a, good, that's, that would be a fine illustration of that. Uh, but there also is such a thing as what my friend Jonathan Lear calls radical hope, which is the kind of hope that you have in circumstances in which you really can't see any ground for hope. And that kind of hope, I think, is an act of will uh, and uh, you know, I don't mean to keep quoting people, but Gramsci famously described his intellectual situation, the intellectual situation of Marxist revolutionaries early in the 20th century. He said, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And there is that kind of optimism, which in which you finally no longer care about the truth or falsity of the hope, of the optimism, you simply need it to sustain you. You simply need it to sustain you. And it's very hard to keep that up.
0: Yeah, isn't that necessarily short-lasted?
1: Well, it could be short-lasted. I mean, in the case of the Jewish people on the hope of the return to Zion, they pray for it three times a day and they mean it. Um, well, there's, and there's grounds no for question. That. Well, there weren't grounds for that in the year one thousand, wherever they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there've been grounds for that. In fact, since nineteen forty-eight, I think that those 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 sentences in the liturgy don't mean anything. They can get on a plane, right?
0: Well,
1: at least after they're, they're vaccinated. But um, but no. So there is a, there is a hope as a purely utilitarian standpoint which you need to get through the horror. Because there are horrors, some of them much worse than the one we're living in, which are not events, but are eras. Mm. So for example, with the pandemic, the pandemic is not an event, it's an era. And we've all learned to live in this world. And we've got our ways through it, we've got our customs, our habits, our ways of avoidance, our ways of facing it, our ways of helping people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an era. And so you need some ideas or some feelings to, to sustain you.
0: For the, the pandemic, I think for some people has been a good mechanism for developing some understanding of the complexity of climate change. And I think mm-hmm. it's useful to contrast them because for the pandemic, as you just said, it's possible to restructure your life in a way that you know does some good. You, there are thing, there are concrete things you can do that will likely keep you and the people you love, if not certainly safe, then certainly safer than they than you would be otherwise. Um, but for something as enormous as climate change and all of all that that encompasses, it's very difficult to feel as if there's any progress that can be made, and so despair is a very seductive response.
1: Yeah, let me say two things. I think you're right that the pandemic is a rehearsal for the environmental crisis that awaits us, which actually has already begun. Uh, I think that's absolutely right, especially because the pandemic is planet-wide. Right. There are no countries or peoples or tribes or groups or ethnicities or religions or, or any corner of human life that hasn't been threatened and affected by this. So I think that's right. And, and like uh, the pandemic, I think there are two questions about climate change, which is how are we going to face it and how are we going to fix it? Hmm. I think the way we're going to fix it is the way we fix the pandemic. It's that gorgeous word science. It's pretty clear to me that uh, I'm, not, I'm not a close student of this, but even if, and to get into policy for a moment, even if Biden reattaches us to the Paris Accords, yeah. it looks to me like it's too late for the Paris Accords. For only
0: the Paris Accords to
1: solve the problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: and even if we do everything that's expected of us, uh, you know, we inhabit the planet with the Chinese and the Indians, and they cannot be expected. To contribute to this effort so the only solution that i can see in my amateurish way here will be science and technology
0: so I, I think it's but
1: wait but then i'm sorry to interrupt you but then there's that's the fix but then there's how do we face it and the question of how to face this kind of crisis is a really difficult one because it inspires quite naturally quite naturally an apocalyptic feeling uh, that the world is coming to an end, that the end is nigh, that uh, you shouldn't bring children into this world. Will our children grow up in such a world? um, You know, there are all the apocalyptic movies that one remembers about this, and suddenly they don't look quite as fictional to a lot of people. And so the question on how to face climate change, for me, is the question of the use and the abuse of an apocalyptic mentality. I tend to think that apocalypticism is a danger uh, to any practical action. I think that apocalypticism is a fancy form of despair. And despair never, never stimulated anyone to act except to die differently than they might otherwise have done. Uh, and so I think that the only solution will be science and policy, and we need to have a frame of mind, an intellectual and emotional framework, that will, um, that will, if you pardon the expression, lower the temperature mm. um, without, and this is a big without, creating complacence in the population.
0: Right. So that's the thing that surprised me if, about what you said about, well, first, you, you said science and technology, and this last time you said science and policy, mm-hmm. um, which, gets, which gets sideways at the question I have. Um, and I think this is related. I think the question of how we face it and how um, we stop it are related. And it also, um, I think I learned this through the pandemic. Um, it's not just science and technology that we all needed. We also needed um, the seriousness and commitment of everybody on the planet and also the people closest to us and had to develop respect or hope um, to believe in the, the the recognition on the part of others of the gravity of the situation. Um, without that, science is not going to be enough and neither no, is technology. It's
1: You know, the, the vaccine was invented and now it has to be distributed and administered. But
0: even before that, I mean, people had... We had to hope that people everywhere... Um, we're not just going to keep going to clubs and not wear masks and not. Ta- oh, and you j-
1: mean in terms of the behaviors? But that's that, a that, yeah. that's a big that's I think a big that's right. asterisk. Look, I, the one of the most depressing um, conclusions to be drawn from the pandemic is uh, the reluctance of scores of millions of people to behave rationally in their own interest and their proud willingness to defy science to the point where um, you know science has become an infringement on their
0: liberties that's true I uh, think it's all the inversion is also true and I have I have not lived through an experience like this I don't know that anybody in living memory has where the huge the humanity of people across the globe was evident to me because they had the same anxieties that I did. Right. Um, And that is also true. Yes. And I think... The One of the enormities of climate change that we feel is just the number of human beings who it scares us won't take these things seriously. Um, and we have just borne witness over the course of the year and in both directions to the seriousness with which those people will take some you kind know, of existential threat.
1: I think you're right that the, one of the, the pandemic has created a kind of planetary solidarity that Probably has never existed before. Yeah, the world wars were not world wars; they were parts of the world wars.
0: Yeah, and they um, didn't affect everybody. That's it, what it affected I mean. equally. Yeah,
1: right, right. But this is genuine planetary solidarity. I think that, um, and it's a good thing. I should add because there are times in which fear does have a basis in reality. You know, everybody likes to throw around Delmore Schwartz's old joke about how even paranoids have enemies. But um, but right. in fact, sometimes the rational thing is to be afraid. Now, when the fear is rational, that's not the kind of fear we were discussing earlier. When fear is rational, it's because you have sufficient knowledge to warrant it. And when you have sufficient knowledge to warrant it, you also have sufficient knowledge to begin to act against it. Uh, And so that that is a higher kind of fear, if you will, or Mm -hmm. a more useful kind of fear, or a fear that is not at all incompatible with action. Yeah. Uh, And that's, but in the case of the early in the pandemic, you saw lots of people running around thinking they're not gonna get it, right? They're not gonna get it. They'll read about it, but they're not gonna get it. You know, even paranoids have enemies, even rich people get COVID
0: yeah the, I mean, the articles in february of last year or yeah of last year will be a document for all of time right. as long as there are human beings it's well, going Well
1: one must read them sympathetically it's very hard psychologically to deal with mortal risk it really is um, you know i think for obvious reasons because of my well-known parochialism that i think of the jews in germany and in eastern europe in the 30s who didn't leave. Now, there were Zionists who were right in telling them to get out because this was going to end badly. But they didn't leave. My grandparents didn't leave. They were in Poland.
0: Were they told to leave?
1: Uh, Well, they certainly considered it. I mean, everybody had to have considered it. But people do not willingly overturn the way they live. For the sake of a probability or a likelihood, they don't. Yeah. It's it, and now and the people who did leave, their neighbors, many of them must have thought they're overreacting. Now we think of them. Now we think of them as genuinely prescient. Now we think of them as genuinely prescient, um, and that we think that their ability to face reality was better than the ability of other Jews who were threatened to face reality. And so, as I say, it's very hard to to psychologically to act on mortal risk. Uh, It really is. Um, You know, and I think that these are the questions, you know, with climate change early in the pandemic, uh, we are the crisis doesn't clarify itself quickly. Yeah. It doesn't clarify itself quickly enough so that we're in this impossible and unfortunate situation sometimes in which we're in a crisis but we don't want to accept it as a crisis yet or we don't want to accept it as DEFCON 1 of a crisis. And so the crisis has begun and we are still trapped in what could be called vestigial frames of mind that are not useful to the circumstances. And it's very hard to know, um, you know, I've often thought that when, in considering the problem of realism and being realistic, it's very hard to know where the line is between real, realism and complicity with reality, for example.
0: Mm-hmm because That's just the way it is. Yeah,
1: what, one you know, one doesn't want to be complicit with reality because reality is almost always, if not dangerous, then imperfect. On the other hand, one doesn't want to be a fool, yeah, and one doesn't want to destroy one's brain, uh, and the, and the one the, the one the, those one loves with with overheated and inflamed fantasies of global destruction.
0: That's the, so. That leads perfectly into the next question that I have for you, which is this. When you're dealing with problems or threats as enormous as the ones that we're struggling with, and, and it has felt for a good long while now, like there are always problems that demand our full attention. Um, and, I mean, I'm dating this in my mind to 2016, although I'm sure there are precedents prior. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: Probably. Probably. Um, so the thing that I want to ask you is, on the one hand, there is the struggle of understanding a crisis and all its complexity while you're living inside it, um, and the, um, the capacity for becoming a to the crisis because you just don't want to change the way you live. The flip of that, uh, and we all know people, or perhaps are these people, um, is during the pandemic, for example, only paying attention to the latest stats the latest data becoming obsessed with the problem which you could so easily justify you could I mean someone might say to you you have to think about something else and you would you would not be wrong to say I can't how could I right. um, and so I think I what I want what I want you to respond to is when there is a problem so big do you have a intellectual and moral responsibility to take breaks from it.
1: Yeah, I think that...
0: To see it clearly, I mean.
1: One way of seeing things clearly is by not looking at them all the time. I think that the diversification of the contents of one's mind is... um, Because, ironically the question of why we live should be the question most posed by the pandemic because of all the people who are dying. You know, crises, uh, enormities, atrocities, natural disasters, they pose first questions. And, and the first question is, is, I mean, the very first question is obviously how do we save ourselves and everyone else? How do we get out of this crisis? Um, but the second question is, what does this crisis teach us about human life? And one of the things I hope it teaches us is that is that there are higher activities than shopping, which seems a relatively uncontroversial to say, thing to say, except that, unfortunately, our society is organized um, around such experiences. Um,
0: so hopefully, going into this year, this new year, the framework, which has become so protean because of how quickly things have changed, um, will it will be possible for for there to be a kind of um, transfer internal transformation. I
1: hope that people. Culturally. I hope that people will come out of this not just relieved but somewhat reflective. You know, survivors. If you think about survivors. There are are two possibilities. One is that after what they've been through, they never want to think about it again. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand that. I mean, it makes perfect sense. On the other hand, it's psychologically damaging because the scars are there and the memories are there and they have to be confronted. The other option is to come out and breathe and take a walk in the sunshine and love ones loved ones and love new people and go to museums and cook, Um, but also, also to be more reflective about, if you'll pardon the fancy phrase, human destiny and the fragilities of human life.